The second commandment, let's talk about idolatry. I'm Father Kurt Hein with Light of Christ Anglican Church, and we are going through to be a Christian in Anglican Catechism. We are on the second commandment, which is page 95, question 274. But before we dive into this, let's take a moment and pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Question 274. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay, question 275. What does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. Okay, so we're talking about idolatry here. And when we're talking about idolatry, we're, we're getting really close to the root of all sin. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when we take something good and we make it ultimate. When this happens, what we're doing is we're making a man-made image. In other words, we're making an image that, that is not real, that's a lie, of what will bring us ultimate meaning and happiness. And then we give our entire life to that created thing. This is what it means to worship. We serve the idol that we've made. In the ancient world, they would actually make a graven image, a statue of a god that represented and embodied the ideals that the persons or cultures would be worshiping. So a common Old Testament false deity was in the form of an ox or a bull. This represented domination, power, fertility. And these ideas were then worshiped as a means to achieve happiness in the world. We do the same thing, right? We just don't make carved images. We worship money. What's interesting though, um, if you go to uh, New York, where will you find a giant uh, graven bull? You will find it uh, very close to where they trade stocks. So there, there's a connection here. A deep connection. 276. Uh, how did Israel break the first two commandments? Israel neglected God's law, worshipped the gods of the nations around them, and brought images of these gods, idols, into God's temple, thus corrupting his worship. So God's people broke this commandment by adapting themselves to the local cultural environment. They adopted the false gods of the Canaanites, and they put them alongside Yahweh, or they even reinterpreted Yahweh in the light of the false gods. You actually see this very early on with Moses when he goes up Mount Sinai to um, get the t Ten Commandments from God. He comes down, and what does he find? He finds that they have carved a graven image of a young bull calf out of gold. They're engaged in ritual sex around it, and they've actually called that, uh, that, ca that golden calf Yahweh, saying that it was the God that brought them out of Egypt. And so we can see how blasphemous this is and how it creates a false image of, of who God is. 277. Why did the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshipped and served false gods by means of idols, believing they could manipulate these counterfeit gods for their own benefit. This is really important, this manipulation. The ancients actually had a really sophisticated, pretty sophisticated view regarding these false gods. Very much like we have an idea of sacraments, that God uses physical means to enter into relationship with us, namely the incarnation of God himself in Jesus. The ancients saw their idols as means whereby they, they communicated with the deity represented by that image. So they didn't actually believe that the statue itself was powerful. They believed that it was like a means, a, a, a portal 
into a spiritual world and so that they could actually communicate with the deity behind that idol um, uh, because the idol was inhabiting it. They, they, would, they would pay a priest who would come and he would do a, a special ceremony, maybe anointing this idol that had been made by a manufacturer with oil, um, whispering something into its ear. And what, what this priest was doing was calling the deity down into this idol that would inhabit it like an avatar. At that point, it would become an idol. It would go from being just a statue to being an idol that was treated as sacred. But this worship was and is fundamentally different than the worship of the true God, right? Yahweh. And it is fundamentally different because of what the, uh, what the, what the catechism says here. What they're trying to do through this idolatry is manipulate the gods. It's very different from our relationship with the true God, which is one of reciprocal love, recipro reciprocal gift, freedom, relationship. Instead, this idolatry was based on lust and manipulation and greed. You would bribe the God. So the God would be mad if you didn't give it what it wanted. You would give it what it wanted in order to bribe it. Um, so you would, you would bring whatever the bribe was before the avatar of the God, before the idol, sacrifice it, this, this thing of value, even in some cases, if you wanted something really, really big, really important, you might even sacrifice your own child in front of this idol. And in doing so, that God would then return the favor, if you will, though it's not much of a favor. It's a, like I said, this is all based in manipula manipulation with some supernatural power. It was a quid pro quo relationship of manipulation. I get something from you because because you get something from me. You're both using each other. And that is the basic idea of pagan idolatry. So it's exactly opposite of our relationship with the true God, who cannot be manipulated. Right? True God cannot be manipulated because he doesn't need anything. He's the source of all being. He's infinite plenitude. You can't manipulate a God like that. Instead, when we enter in, when we are in a relationship with God, it's not manipulation. It's one of love. It's one of reciprocal self-giving, of freedom. And so we, he gives us himself, and then we return that gift of giving ourselves to him in love and gratefulness. Question 278. Are all images wrong? No. God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images, yet commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation. Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them superstitiously. Uh, this is really important. Many Protestants uh, tend to read this second commandment as prohibiting all images. Now, I have a lot of respect for J.I. Packer. He's a tremendous, was a tremendous Anglican. God uh, bless him and rest his soul. But in his otherwise really good book, Knowing God, he makes this fundamental error as well. I think it's chapter two, where he equates making images of, of, of Jesus and the saints with idolatry. Now, we know we know that's not the case because we know this is not an absolute prohibition. It reads like an absolute pro prohibition, but we know it's not because we read it in context. We know just a little later in the narrative of Exodus, Yahweh explicitly commands Moses to make images for tabernacle worship. Examples would be the pomegranates, which hang from Aaron's vestments, or the angels whose wings cover the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the box where the Ten Commandments are housed. And, and later, God commands Moses to make a, a serpent, a, a graven serpent that's on a pole for the healing of, of his people. 
So this prohibition can't be an absolute prohibition against making images. Rather, it's a prohibition specifically against the making of images for the purpose of pagan worship. And that's the key here. That's the key. And so Christians are free, as the Catechism says, to use art to depict holy people and things to assist us in encountering the grace and mercy of God. Uh, St. John of Damascus, that's a 7th century saint, actually argues that the incarnation of the invisible God as the visible man, Jesus of Nazareth, in history gives us explicit permission and even, he argues, duty to represent his acts and the acts of saints through art. Now, not all Anglicans agree with me here since Anglicans emphasize the first four centuries um, and St. John of Damascus is later than that. We, we emphasize the first four centuries of the church and uh, we've also been greatly influenced by the Reformation, which in its Calvinistic and Zwinglian forms actually opposed Christian visual art, um, seeing it, like I said before, as inherently idolatrous. But I believe given the incredible use of visual imagery in the Old Testament, uh, and especially, you can look this up online, recent excavations of Jewish synagogues, which were filled with iconography and art. Along with the reality of the incarnation and the ubiquity of Christian visual art throughout the first 1,000 years of Christianity, the burden of proof is squarely on those who would deny that we have a right to, um, to visual Christian art in worship and that it's inherently idolatrous. I think the burden of proof um, squarely li lies with them. Now, like it says here in, in the Catechism, there is always a danger with art, and we always have to be um, checking ourselves to make sure that we are not worshiping the art or using it superstitiously as some sort of um, way to ward off evil spirits. No, they're a way to understand God and to have a relationship with God, not to worship and not to use superstitiously. 279. Are idols always images? No. Anything can become an idol if I look to it for salvation from my sin or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. This helps to answer the previous question as well. Even the visual art that God has made, God has made, meaning the beautiful and good things in creation, can become idols. Right? The, who's the greatest artist? Is, is it not God himself? Well, even his great and perfect art can become idol idols for us. But it's not because the thing itself is wrong, it's because our hearts are wrong. Anything can become an idol. All that is required is a perversion of my inner disposition towards it, to stop looking to it as a gift from God that displays a bit of God's creative genius and a bit of his character, but instead to look at it for my salvation, to look at it for my ultimate comfort, for my ultimate hope. That's when the thing becomes an idol. Question 280. What does the second commandment teach you about hope? It teaches me that my ultimate hope is in God alone, for he alone is God and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself, another person, my wealth or occupation or status, or any created thing. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. Yeah, this is true. Hope in Christianity is faith looking forward. Hope is to trust God with our future. It's cliche, um, but I, I love this phrase. Um, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. That's the Christian hope, right? We must repent and turn away from placing our ultimate hope in any earthly thing. When we lose an earthly hope, like our 401k value collapses, as Christians, we must use that feeling of loss, which is proper whenever we lose a good thing, 
but we need to um, use that feeling of loss to rediscover where our ultimate hope lies. Not in money, not in power, not in possession, not even in human relationships, but in God alone. That is who we are created for ultimately. Our ultimate, the ultimate goal of the human life, the ultimate end of the human life, the ultimate future of human life is to know God and to be known by him, to be in that relationship with the most beautiful, the most true, um, the most good being um, possible in the entire universe, the, the source of all the goodness and truth and beauty in this world. 281. How was Jesus tempted to break the two commandments? Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross. Instead, Jesus served and worshiped God faithfully and perfectly all his life and calls us to do the same. So right after Jesus was baptized, he entered into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. What was he tempted with? Well, he was tempted with idolatry, just like Adam and Eve, right? That first sin was turning the good gift of a fruit that God said, no, don't eat of it right now. They took that good gift and they grasped it outside of God's timing, outside of God's way. They grasped it for themselves, making it ultimate instead of God. You see what's happening there? That's exactly idolatry. And, and so this is what Satan tempts the second Adam with, Jesus, making a good thing the ultimate thing. Hey, instead of trusting God, why don't you find your ultimate comfort in using your power to turn these rocks into bread? Instead of finding your glory in God, why don't you jump off of this temple and receive glory from man because of your power? Instead of taking up the cross to become the king of all things through serving all, why don't you just bow down to Satan? and receive the power from him now. You see, that is idolatry. All the temptations are really the same temptation. Will you choose to use your power, use your ability to manipulate the world for yourself? Will you enter into that sort of relationship with the created order? Or will you submit to the power, will you submit your power to God's will for you and the mission that he has given you? And of course, with Jesus, he and the Father were one. And so Satan was trying to drive a wedge into that, into that um, pure and and um, that pure unity between Father and Son, and he could not. Jesus um, rejected the the temptation of Satan. Praise the Lord. Two eight two. How will idolatry affect you? If I worship and serve idols, I will become like them, empty and alienated from God, who alone can make me whole. This is the story of Romans chapter 1, when Paul says this in the epistles. It's an, it's an unbreakable spiritual principle that we become like what we worship. All idols are fool's gold. They never deliver, deliver on the promises that they, that they have, but leave us as empty as they are. So only when we worship God, knowing his love and giving him our love, that we discover our true calling as humans. So let us fall down and worship Jesus, God made man and discover what it means to live a life of true meaning, purpose, and hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you like this video, please hit the like button, leave a comment below, subscribe, hit the bell, share this with your friends, and I will see you next week.